So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly the earth, and multiply in it. It's a very different world indeed. It is fascinating to me when you really meditate upon how the world started with Adam and Eve in a perfect sinless world with no death and no entropy. The breaking down. Everyone's an herbivore. In fact, I had never noticed this until the 30th year of teaching the Bible that I caught it as we were going through Genesis 1 and 2 that the plants were to create desire when Adam and Eve looked upon them because they were herbivores and they were to look at the plants and they were within them to desire the plants, to desire the beauty of plants. So when you think about people are really into their gardens and their rose gardens and their tropical plants and here in Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, this area, people that sometimes are really into their yards. My dad uh, took a lot of horticulture in college when he got out of the Marine Corps. He had a master's degree. He went back to junior college and took like all this horticulture and stuff to study plants. And he did landscaping for the next 30 years. But my dad could tell you any plant in Southern California, what it was in its name. And I was like, well, it's just, it was there. There was a desire for the plants. In fact, in Eve's temptation, that natural desire for plants and the fruit and the flavor of the fruit that was there as herbivores, not eating, not carnivores, but vegetarian, actually vegan as well, full vegans, it was there, and there was an actual, uh, a favorable lust to desire that. And if you review Genesis 2, you'll see that, that they would look upon the fruit and like, wow, this mango, like, so when, if you're really into, like, you're a really healthy eater, and you, like, wow, look at, you know, these, you just know that this is really good watermelon, and this is really good mangoes, and this, this pineapple you know is sweet, smell it, like, that is from God. We're designed that way. In that perfect, so that perfect sinless world, Adam, Eve, naked, no shame, superhumans, all the animals are their friends, nobody's eating each other, and they're all lusting after plants and fruits and eating them and having a wonderful relationship with the Lord walking in the cool of the night, in the evening, in the garden. That's the way it was. And again, Noah comes off the ark, it's like the garden's gone, the pre-flood world's gone, and the herbivore world is gone. Did you catch that? I don't like to see anything die. I've said this many times. I just don't like it at all. Even growing up, when people, like, there's always that kid in the neighborhood who just wants to torture an insect or something. I could just never, I couldn't fish because when my dad took me fishing, we'd catch the bluegill in the lakes there in Virginia, and they'd put them on the string, like in the water, and, I, and they'd be dying next to me, and I just, I couldn't do it. Even now when I walk on the pier and people are catching fish, I got to look away when they catch fish. And I know Jesus caught fish and Jesus ate fish. He ate fish with his resurrected body. I just don't like to see a fish flipping around. I just don't like it. I don't like to see anything dying. And as violent as the pre-flood world was in Genesis 6, the environment is very violent 
in the post-flood world. And now, instead of just lusting, naturally lusting, the natural desires, we think of lust as a negative word, so I should just be saying desiring, but powerful desire, like a sexual desire, the powerful desire for the food, the right food that God designed originally, now it's like everyone's going to eat each other. It's, it's crazy. Like, that's the post-flood world. I mean, Noah and the reboot of the human experience, it's a difficult one. It's so different than Adam and Eve. And, and that's how it is sometimes with the redemption. Even though we're a new creation in Christ and he saves us, we're so often profoundly affected by what was lost before we got saved. Does that make sense? Even though we're a new creation and God is a God of the second chance, depending on how much you wrecked your life before you came to Christ, might be how far reaching the consequences are from what was wasted. And we can look at a book like Joel and say, hey, wow, I'll redeem the years that the locusts ate, even the swarming locusts. And that's really good news from the Lord because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Romans 5 says, for in Adam all sin and die, but in Christ, the second Adam, all will be made alive. But there's still effects. And I think for those of you that maybe lived a portion of your life without faith in Jesus, you can look back and say, man, how I just do that so differently. And I'm so grateful I got on track with Jesus at the age of 26. But it's just so hard to even think about what went on between 13 and 26. And how those things still can affect me in various ways. But praise the Lord that he's the God of the second chance. Because a reboot with Noah and his wife is better than no reboot at all. And none of us exist. And there's just darkness. Who knows what God could do if he wanted to do whatever he could do. God is able, and he's going to do things consistent with his character. But he gave humanity a second chance. And those people going forward the Harvest Crusade last week, they got a second chance. And some of those people have train wrecked every relationship, every job, every experience, every day of their life. But now they got a second chance. They're not in the garden. They're not in the primeval world. They're coming into a rough world. But still, God's a God of the second chance. And that's what I really like about Noah. It's not a honeymoon. It's not, it's not Adam and Eve with a honeymoon in the garden. It's Noah and his wife and their adult children and the in-laws. It's a new beginning. And that really blesses me. Now, in this new beginning, God changes things, right? You see there's carnivores, and you can eat anything you want. You can eat anything you want. Now, we know when God made the covenant with Israel, he declared clean food and unclean food. But we do know, as the Bible interprets the Bible, that the distinction of foods to be eaten in the New Testament, when Jesus spoke to Peter in the vision in Acts chapter 10, he said, eat the food that is unclean in the old covenant. Eat it now. Had to tell him three times. And Peter said, no, I'm kosher. I would never do that. Essentially, that was his response. And then... Jesus told Peter, go with these men to the house of Cornelius, doubting nothing. And when he came to the house of Cornelius, and he saw that God poured out his Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and they spoke in tongues, and they were water baptized, he said, now I understand that the unclean animals represented those that weren't Jewish, the people of covenant. But now the new covenant is for everybody. And even as I'm told to eat the unclean food, that is symbolic that I can understand in my world that God came to save all people. The gospel for the Jew first and the Gentiles. It's for the free 
and the slave. There's neither male nor female, okay? The gospel is universal to save. So the, the dietary stuff is kind of funny, but it's, I bring this up because a lot of people who attacked the Bible, including our former president, he attacked the Bible, uh, he specifically attacked the law of God. You can see a clip of it. Maybe you can't anymore. You could a while back where he attacked the dietary law of God saying, how could you impose that and all this stuff? And he spoke ignorantly. And I'm not afraid to say that. It was before he was the president, a long time ago, there's video of him talking about the law and how you can't, you can't use the law of God because, and he uses the dietary law to make fun of the Bible. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's word interprets his word. So I bring this up because food is something funny with the Lord. Herbivore, post-flood world, carnivore, eat anything you want. Then he makes a covenant with Israel uh, a thousand years later, more than that. Yeah, about a thousand years later, makes that covenant and says you can't eat anything you want. Don't eat the sleep slugs. And then in the new covenant, after Jesus rises from the grave, through the apostle Paul, with the experience I told you about with Peter, then Paul says you can eat whatever you want, but do so with thanksgiving. And, you know, we have chapters about eating meat offered to idols. Don't bog down on things that don't matter. It's not about food, as Romans says. It's not the food that makes us righteous or defiles us. It's what comes out of the heart. Jesus said it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a person. And, of course, he taught that in the context where they say you don't wash your hands before you eat. And he said, you guys just so miss it. Or when they mocked the, uh, the disciples for eating the wheat. And he goes, if you'd only known the scriptures, you would know I desire mercy and compassion. It does get our attention that it went from herbivore to carnivore. That's significant to me. It does get my attention because I just don't like that in that sense. But God, God allowed it. He said that's the way it is. And that's what happens when you get plan B. Plan A is mangoes and pineapples with God walking in the garden, rainbows and unicorns, and naked people unashamed. Plan B is... Go for the carne asada, but don't drink the blood. I just like plan A better. I'm not saying anything about dietary. You understand the context I'm speaking here? It, it just, it's a brave new world. It's a brave new world. But in that brave new world, something comes up. Again, be fruitful and multiply. We see that in the first verse. But draw your attention to verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man's blood shall be shed. When I taught at Calvary Chapel Downey last Wednesday, I talked about this sowing and reaping and uh, being givers, not takers. And I'm just so drawn to contrast when you see the sons of Adam and Eve, are the daughters, they're takers. But when we're new in Christ, we tend to be givers because God gave his son. So we've been touched by the Holy Spirit. We're going to, the son of man didn't come to be served, to take, but to serve and give his life for many to give. So it's the ultimate fruit that you can tell when someone's been touched by the Holy Spirit. It's just less about them. It's more about the Lord and serving others. And it's a process our whole life to understand this. So you look at verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by his blood shall be shed. That is sowing and reaping. Like Jesus said, whoever takes up the sword will perish by the sword. And you say, well, what about war? What about war? I'm not talking about war. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you hate someone, that's a, you've already pretty much... In your mind, you've killed them. And most people, you know, again, 90% of murders are people killing people they know. And it's usually because they couldn't forgive and let go. And they're going to control the situation. 
And even if they go to jail for 20 years and the rest of their life for taking someone's life spontaneously or premeditated, it, they just, it's just something where they're going to have the final say. And we see that in the human experience. So the, pre, the predecessor for taking someone's life is not forgiving them and letting it stew and to hate them. And it's really important that we forgive because what Jesus said, the one who forgives will be forgiven. But the one who takes blood will have their blood shed. As a man sows, as a woman sows, so shall they reap. So if you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. But if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. So if you sow forgiveness, you will find forgiveness. If you sow mercy, you will receive mercy. If you show compassion and grace, you will receive compassion and grace. As a man sows, so shall they reap. But if you sow bitterness and wrath and malice and Conniving, or as it says, like in the Psalms and the Proverbs, the, you, the very trap they set, they fall into. Or the ultimate example, perhaps in the entire Bible, is the hangman's noose that Haman built for Mordecai, is the very gallow he himself hung on. We just we need to be people that are loving, gracious, merciful, and, forg- and forgiving toward others. The three great equities: purity, suffering forgiveness. Those are the stocks that you want to invest your future in. No one can ever take from you. And governments take, 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 take. That's what they do. And as they expand, they take more. But a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the one thing they can never take from you investing in your children or your grandchildren or great-grandchildren is your faith. That can never be taken from you. They can take homes, cars, possessions, cows, wells, all these things, but they can never, ever, ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. The equity of purity, the equity of suffering when we take it, and it brings honor to the Lord. As Job said, when I've come through this, I'll come forth with pure gold. And the equity of forgiveness. People that walk in purity, people that have suffered greatly and their faith has brought them through it, and people who forgive others, they're like, they just, you can just, there's something you just sense in their power of their presence, these type of women, these type of men. As we sow, we shall reap. And if we shed man's blood and everything related to that in the category of the flesh, that is what we will reap. But if we are fruitful and multiply, we will bring forth abundantly and multiply. See the contrast? Now, of course, these are physical things. But again, Jesus said, we're to be fruitful. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Obviously, the context is reproducing and the human race, which they did, and the table of nations gets to it in the next chapter. But the whole idea of being fruitful is one of the the common threads in the teachings of Jesus throughout the four Gospels. It was an agro-society that he lived in. So, so often he talked with agricultural terms, the sower, the seed, these sorts of things, sowing the, the, the enemy that came in and sowed the tares with the wheat. I mean, it was an agro-society. So when we think about being fruitful, man, verse 6 and 7 are a total contrast. Look at them. Before we move on, just look one more time at verses 6 and 7. In a post-flood world of all this uncertainty and we eat animals and animals eat animals and people violence is going to continue. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And then, and as for you, in contrast to that, 
the, the man of covenant, the, the children of faith, be fruitful and multiply. The first commandment in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, like I shared Saturday night, you just, your whole world can change. And you've gone from Kauai to Siberia, whatever. Nonetheless, be fruitful and multiply in Kauai, be fruitful and multiply in Siberia. Great government, be fruitful and multiply. Horrible government, be fruitful and multiply. Look at how Bonhoeffer thrived under the Nazis. And they put him to death, but before they did, he thrived. How about Corrie ten Boom, when the Nazis invaded Holland and there was nothing she could do about it? They still, they didn't change, it didn't change who they were. They obeyed the Lord. They risked their lives to save innocent people. And they weren't the only ones that risked their lives to save the Jews and, and other people that were attacked by the Nazis. Man, what we sow, we'll reap. If we take risk for the Lord that are honorable to the Lord, we will reap the fruit of those things. But if we're cowards, we don't get anything. Because like Revelation says, outside the city, capital C, cowards. There's no one that's in heaven that's a coward. I say that again. The Holy Spirit tells us that there's no one in heaven that's a coward. It's got to be the opposite of faith. So a saving faith would remove the cowardice. And where we go from there? We need the Esthers and we need the Daniels in this generation at this time, in this place, all over this planet. So we can spew venom like most of the world outside these doors, threatening to shed blood, shed blood, attack, hate, malice, bitterness, wrath. Or we can be people like, we're going to keep on doing what God's called us to do, be fruitful and multiply, and we're going to bear fruit abundantly. Don't just have a little bit of fruit. Have a bunch of fruit. Sow fruit abundantly. But as for you, there's a contrast. And isn't there always a contrast? There's always a contrast between the kingdom and the darkness. We pick it up in verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you. Man, this one's for the whole planet, guys. Read on. Every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Wow. So the rainbow is the sign of the covenant between God, humanity, and every living creature. Even cockroaches. Not that they appreciate it. Or black widows or brown recluse. You know, you think of all those types of things, rattlesnakes. Those rattlesnakes on the trail at San Onofre. Trail three. There he goes. Hannah stop, and there he goes. You know, listen. Every 
living creature. Even the coyotes roaming Huntington Beach in all your alleyways. Every living creature. That rainbow, whenever it shows up, and when they show up in Southern California, doesn't everyone take a picture of it? Don't they all post it on Facebook and Instagram? Aren't the news crews there to show us, look, it happens in California, you get to see a rainbow. It's a sign of the second primary covenant that God ever made. He made the covenant with Adam, and then this covenant, which really is for all creation. And safely presuming that all life in the universe is on this planet, which is reasonable to presume based upon the word of God and scientific evidence, not that there aren't aliens because fallen angels are aliens and they do appear and disappear and do the things that fallen diabolical angels do. But presuming we know that earth is the center of the universe, we know that God, the son who holds the universe together, came to this earth to die on the cross to redeem us, the prized possession of the earth. So based upon what we know and what's proven science is this covenant is for everything we see that's living, that has ever lived and lives on this, to this day. That's wonderful. So even when people are, are eating animals and animals are eating each other, it's mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom now or planet Earth or whatever it is. God says, you know what? Even in this fallen world with the change and environment and change and all these things, this rainbow isn't just for you, Noah. It's not just for your wife and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and your daughter-in-laws or even your grandkids, your great-grandkids. It's for everybody. The reptiles, the sea creatures, the dolphins, the sharks, it's for everybody. That rainbow is God's sign to all creation still going forward from the fall under entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, that God keeps his promises. Now, my Cavaliers, Fitz and Lucy, don't understand that that rainbow is testimony that God keeps his promises, nor does my cat, Max. And I can definitely tell you, Lilo and Goldie do not understand that because they don't know what's going on because they're, they, they're old dogs. They just, but we do because God's put eternity in our heart. So we have the cognitive capacity to be able to look at the rainbow and say, God is faithful to keep his word And this rainbow tells us until he's done, he's not done. And that God's into life. And we look at this rainbow and we know it's for us to not live in fear of that judgment happening again that way ever in time, space, and matter. And so it's not, the rainbow is not something that invokes fear in us, but in fact, it's something in humanity that invokes a joy. When we used to go to Oahu a lot, our good friends, the Thorns, have a house right by Lani Akea there on the north shore between Haleiwe and Waimea Bay. And uh, Papialoa Street, that's the most beautiful place ever. And about five out of seven days, that rainbow shows up every, every evening off Kainu Point about the same time of day. And I would just sit there and just stare at it. It was mesmerizing. It was so beautiful. Like sea turtles on the beach. I just, it's like I, I just wanted to jump through it or something, you know? It was just so beautiful. The rainbow is the crown jewel of it all. Because as much as we love a sunrise and a beautiful sunset with high clouds, it makes it, you know, reflect that color off Palos Verdes and it shoots up and everyone stops on PCH to take pictures. Man, the rainbow, that's the stopper of all stoppers, especially where you don't see them a lot. But there's something more to the rainbow. Not just that God keeps his promises 
as a sign. See, other covenants came, but to this day, the rainbow is still in effect to remind us that God keeps his promises, every one of them. So go buy a promise Bible at Calvary Bookstore and read them all, because in Jesus' name, they are all yours, and the rainbow confirms it. See a rainbow? Pull out your promise Bible. Just a reminder, he keeps his promises, and the rainbow affirms that to us. He keeps his promises universally to creation. He keeps his promises personally to the church of Jesus Christ in every generation. And he keeps his promises extra personally to you because he knows the hairs on your head and his plans for you from before the foundation of the world. That rainbow is a testimony that he knows the hairs on your head, and he's got a plan and you can trust him with that plan. And every promise that he's got and that in his living word is preserved by his word, which is exalted above his own name for all eternity. When heaven and earth pass away, his word will never pass away. And every promise is ours in Jesus' name. And that rainbow reminds us of that. Because the, Mosaic, the Abrahamic covenant is deceased. It's obsolete. It's the A-track player. It's gone. The Mosaic covenant with Israel, it's obsolete. It's gone. They're replaced by the new and everlasting covenant we have with Jesus Christ. So there are really two running covenants right now. The, the everlasting covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, and our sign is the cup and the bread for communion. That's the sign. That's a sign for the church. The rainbow is a sign for all humanity that God keeps his word. In a sense, the rainbow is like creation. It just declares to us that God is our creator, but the cup and the bread declare to us that Jesus Christ is our redeemer. But they're both signs. And that covenant of the rainbow is still in effect. It's not negated by these other covenants that have been replaced through Jesus Christ. Because the Abrahamic covenant, the promise he made with Abraham, was for a season. The Mosaic covenant, the promises God made with Israel, was for a season. And we are told there are shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. But this rainbow, it runs right through all that. It's not negated. It's not like when Jesus took the cup and instituted communion and the birth of the church and on the day of Pentecost Peter didn't get up and say hey you know it's a new covenant and by the way the rainbow doesn't mean anything anymore because that rainbow affirms that God keeps his promises it's a sign we have two signs that we can look at in our experience as followers of Christ that God keeps his promises the cup and the bread and the rainbow and the bonus on the rainbow is this In Revelation chapter 4, when describing the throne of God, what is over the throne of God? You know. You know now. It's a rainbow. Before there ever was a rainbow on earth after the flood, in eternity, outside our dimension, where God's throne is, there's a rainbow going over the Father's presence. The rainbow is the sign of his presence and his glory. The rainbow. God's throne is eternal. The rainbow belongs to Abba Father. It declares his presence because it is his presence. So not only does the rainbow tell us he's never going to flood the world again, it tells us that God is on the throne and all of his promises are yes, yes, or no, no, but never for us, yes and no. Your boss might be yes and no. Politicians might be yes and no. Your 
City council might be yes and no. Your neighbor might be yes and no. People you love and care about might be yes and no. But God's yes, yes, and his throne has a rainbow over it. And he gave the rainbow as a testimony. He keeps his word, all of it. So build your house on the rock of his promises. Love the rainbow. It's the throne of God. And it's a confirmation. He remembers his covenant. I established my covenant. The sign of the covenant. I remember my covenant. Sign of the covenant. My establishment. I remember. I do this. I do that. The covenant which I've established with you. Just affirming all those promises for us. Now we read on in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be a servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be a servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That's the last personal details we get about Noah, except thousands of years after his life, when God is speaking to Ezekiel the prophet. I told you this not long ago in the book of Ezekiel. And he's talking about how bad Israel has fallen and they're in captivity in Babylon. It's around 585 B.C., around that time. He says to Ezekiel, if Noah and Job and Daniel were to intercede for these people, those righteous men, I would not heed their prayer. Now, those are three interesting people because Noah, Job, and Daniel, Daniel was a contemporary. He was alive at that time. Job's like 2000 BC, so he's 1500 years before that time. That might as well be like Charlemagne for us. You know, that's a long time proceeding, but then Noah's even farther back, way farther back to the ancient civilization in the pre flood world. But God says of Noah, he puts him with Job and Daniel and calls him a righteous man. So that's kind of that's how the Lord looks at us, right? After the fact. Because think about how David, with all of his sin, how Jesus took the title son of David. In the end, the Lord sees us in our righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, not in the righteousness of what we can establish or what we think we're doing to save ourselves, which we don't want to be there. We want to grow and be growing in the spirit and becoming more who we're meant to be and less of who we were by faith. But the righteousness is established through faith in Jesus Christ, that positional righteousness. And I find it very encouraging and very comforting and very enlightening that Millennials later, when God's speaking to Ezekiel, he's like, oh, Noah, that righteous man, he's a good man. But even if he were to beg for these people, I'm not listening. They've crossed the line. But Job and Noah and Daniel, these are good guys. That's, a real, that's like a Hall of Fame list. That's like a dream team of men, as far as men go, that are just amazing. Now, in this story, there's a couple things before we wrap it up tonight. Noah lived a long time. Noah lived, he lived 950 years. So he was in that pre-flood world 
where the body had less degeneration, the molecular structure, all that was so much stronger. And when he came off the ark, he, he, went, he went for a while. His sons went for a while. So if from the flood being 1656 from the dawn of creation, 1656 years uh, out of past creation, the flood, Noah made it to 2006. So 2006 years after creation, Noah passed away. His descendants that we're going to see in the coming chapter, they died in 1996, 1997 after creation. So they died before him. His son Shem lived till 2158. Abraham was born in 2008. So Abraham lived the same time as Shem for almost 200 years on the planet in the post-flood world. A little interesting detail, right? Shem, Ham, Japheth. But the decline, we'll see this next week, Noah lived 950 years, but then uh, Afrix lived 600. Then it goes 438 to Selah, uh, 433, 404, 239, Peleg, Sirag, 239, uh, Nahor, 230, Terah, 138, and um, Abram lived 175 years. So that rapid drop in the lifespan in the post-flood Ice Age, original Ice Age era, and then as the environment settled after that. We'll get more into that next week. But he got off the ark and lived a couple hundred years, right? 350, that's a long time. And became a farmer, he had the vineyard, he got drunk. And again, I contrast Noah and Adam. Adam was naked with his wife and unashamed. Noah got drunk and was naked, and it was very embarrassing for everybody. It's a different world. It's a different world. Now, this phrase, cursed be Canaan, has been... In case you don't know your history too well, this is the verse that a lot of racists use, okay? So not just white racists, but Muslim racists, a lot of racists use this passage. Because Ham and then Canaan, and the sense of Canaan, are North Africa and Africa in the Table of Nations in the next chapter. So a lot of the colonial slave owners, not just here, but England as well, because, of course, the slaves were in England too, they would point to this passage that for the racism they practice. It wasn't a starring argument, obviously, because it's not the heart of the Lord whatsoever, but, you know, it's dangerous when people come to the Bible with preconceived self-made religion and then force that on God's word and find things to twist it and use it to justify evil and taking and suppressing as opposed to giving and liberating. It's not hard. I mean, the Christ, Christ on the cross, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. So he's, it's freedom, liberty, you know. But, like, the, people do that. You ask yourself, how do people believe such weird things sometimes when they're religious and they believe really weird things? They just do. I had someone write me a, a, a scathing, furious email recently, and they come from a cult. And there's something I said on the radio, and I didn't even, I didn't even respond. You know, like, you, you realize, you know, like, if you watch enough in our society, you just, there's, there's, there's nothing to say to some people. There's nothing you can say. I don't even do any social media anymore. Like, I got nothing to say. I'm too busy living life. I'll be gone, and I want to fulfill my calling before I'm gone. I have nothing to say, like, where there's not going to be fruit, and it's not going to be favorable. And someone who is in this system, and is listening to K-Wave, and they think they got what I got, and they're in this system, I can't help them. They just need to vent, I'll let them vent. Good for you. Beep. Now, I, I, I like rebuke, and open reproof is better than love carefully concealed. So it's not like I can't be reproved. I've mentioned I once received a 29-page letter criticizing every element of my life. That person was here not that long ago. And he apologized for it. I go, don't apologize. And this is really good stuff on page 27. 
It needed to be said, so thank you. <laughs> my, my wife once said, who writes a 29-page letter to the pastor? And I go, someone who's got something to say. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I, I say that because I have a great relationship with this person, too. But there was really good stuff on page 27. So I'm glad they didn't stop at page 26. I saw the type of stuff Pastor Chuck used to get. Because it come in on the facts. You'd see it's like, whoa. Walk by like, but you kind of want to look again, right? Like, you know, and, and uh, listen, people do weird things because they're weird. God's not weird. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. God is love. And when you come to stuff you don't understand, like now everyone's eating meat or animals eating animals, like, I don't get it, but you know what? That's in my file I don't get. It's not for me. I just know where we're going. It's a tree of life and lots of good fruit. And I want to bear fruit till I get to the good fruit in my glorified body. And uh, I'm not watching Planet Earth or reruns of Mutual of Mall's Wild Kingdom. I have no interest in it. But one thing I would point out in this cursing, who cursed? Did God curse or did Noah curse? Hmm. Noah said, then he said, Noah said it. Noah said, curse and be Canaan. God didn't say, curse and be Canaan. Now, Canaanites had a rough go for about a thousand years with Israel and whatnot. That's their business with God. Whatever God does with nations like Egypt and these other nations that he said and things in the Old Testament and whatever he does with America, that's his business and he can do whatever he wants. Like God be true and a man a liar. But it doesn't say God cursed Canaan or Ham. It says Noah cursed Canaan. Man, the last thing I ever want to do is curse my grandchildren. That's the last thing I want to do is curse my grandchildren. Because you tend to really, they always say you love your grandchildren more than your children. Let the reader understand. It's like you get a second chance. And uh, yeah. In fact, let's go back to verse 1 and end on this thought. Chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons. God blesses, we curse. God blesses, man curses. The heart of God is blessing. The Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and give thee peace. God's a blessing God. When Pastor Chuck used to end those services at Calvary, he didn't say, cursed be Canaan, son of Ham. He said, the Lord bless thee and keep thee and be gracious unto thee. That's who we are. Our God's a blessing God. And we want to bless people. We don't want to curse people. Even a fool's kind of wise when he holds his peace. And the multitude of words, sin's not lacking. Stop the river before it flows. Take those thoughts captive. He or she who controls their spirits better than one who takes a city. James wrote that first epistle in the early church that you curse men and then you bless God. And how can a spring bring forth good water and brack water? It should not be so. Like, so I think there's a good word here. Like, I'm some ways like, you know, I'm embarrassed for Noah by his nakedness, and I'm grateful for his sons that walked backwards and covered his nakedness, and God, God would to God that people would walk backwards and cover our nakedness, and can I get an Amen. I mean, would to God there be people that love you enough to not expose your nakedness but walk backwards and cover it? 
I mean, Jesus was exposed in nakedness on the cross to cover our nakedness. So we, 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 know, we want to be people that cover nakedness in a good way and not try and humiliate people, but to build them up and, and encourage them to be the good Samaritans, women and men who are like that. But I just leave you with this. God blessed the sons of Noah. Noah cursed his grandson. And not should be so. I don't think it's Noah's place because he got drunk and naked that he's going to curse his grandkid. Think about that. He got drunk and naked and he curses his grandkid. And you say, who would do such a thing? Lots of people you know. Maybe even the person you see in the mirror. That's who. So let's be the children of grace. And we're not perfect, but man, God blessed Noah and his sons. Let's not get in a foolish place where we curse people when God sent his son to bless people. Ours is the new and everlasting covenant. And we've got the, the cup and the bread, and we've got the rainbow. And that will get us right to where the rainbow is, the throne room of God, just fine.